From time to time, um, we come across passages in the Bible, um, like the one we just heard, that I actually think are there to provoke us. They're there to prompt some sort of response. And we think about this story of, of Moses, you know, his life goal to lead people out of Egypt into the promised land. And for a moment of you know, a brain snap, you know, he, he's disqualified. You know, everything he had been wanting to do is now taken away from him. And it kind of prompts this poor Moses response in us, if we can just have a little look up there. Poor Moses. And when we come to passages like this, I just want to say generally, I think there's a couple of responses we can make. We can either harbor a suspicion that sometimes God isn't fair. And I think we all do that sometimes. You know, sometimes I think God just does things that are a little bit unfair or over the top. Or we can just say, I don't get that, and we can put it in the too hard basket. But what we are meant to do, and this is just general learning for us all, when we come across passages like this, it's really important to put them in context. We always need to say, well, what's happened before this? What's actually going on in this passage? And what happens beyond it? Particularly, how does Jesus respond to these things? How do we interpret this in the light of what Jesus has done? Because without doing that, there are certain passages that just don't make sense. And this is one of them. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go back to what happened before this. We're going to look at the passage itself. And we're going to see what happens beyond it. Because this is not the end of the story. And hopefully it will help all of this make a little bit more sense. So we're going to start back with Moses' past. And we'll do this very sort of quickly. But those of you who remember our Exodus series, you might remember that Moses' name... Moses means the one drawn up out of the water. And so in case you don't know the story, Moses was born in a period of time where the Israelites, um, his people, were slaves in Egypt. The king of Egypt saw that the Israelite people were becoming more and more numerous. He felt threatened by that, and he issued an edict that basically the Israelite baby boys so they couldn't continue to grow in number, they would just be thrown into the Nile River. It was an infanticide. Um, They were getting rid of the the Israelite children. And God looks down and has compassion on this one child. Before he can do anything good or bad, he's just another Israelite baby. God has compassion on him and does this amazing thing where he ends up, his mom and sister float Moses down the river Pharaoh's own daughter happens to find this baby in a basket. She has compassion. She draws him up out of the water. And this is as if it's God's own hand saving this child. But not just so that God says, oh, well, at least I'll have compassion on one. What we come to realize is that God saves Moses so that he can save the whole Israelite community. And for those of us sitting here today, Moses becomes part of our salvation story. God saves Moses so that he can show compassion on Israel and on the whole world. And I just want to remind us very quickly, you know, while we're at this part of the story, that this sits in the context of Genesis, before we get to Exodus, the book before that is Genesis, where God creates the whole world and he creates humanity and he blesses them and and gives this vision to Adam and Eve that, They're going to fill the world with God's family. 
It's all going to be brothers and sisters and uncles and aunties, and we're all going to live in this beautiful family that's going to fill the earth. Something I think you get visions of when it's Olympic time or a special festival and all the nations gather in the stadium, we sing songs together and cheer together. That was sort of God's concept for the whole world. But then, of course, because of sin, the world fell under a curse. And when we get to Genesis 4, there's this very important story where Cain and his brother Abel, there's a rift between them. Cain actually kills his brother Abel and buries him in the ground. And from that stage onward, we just see the problem of sin spreading. We see more and more examples of man's inhumanity to man. So we need to remember that when we get to this stage of the story, this all takes place in the, con- in the context of Genesis. Rather than the big human race of God's children and God's family all living in harmony together, we see a picture of brothers and sisters killing each other. And this, you know, I was just thinking within my lifetime, the, the number of cases of genocide and infanticide I have seen. I just went back during the week and did kind of my own um, off-the-top-of-my-head recollection. There's been millions and millions of people around the world in my lifetime who have been killed because of hatred between one group and another group, one family and another family, this race and that race. So Moses is born into that, but God draws him up out of the water and saves him because he says, you are going to be part of my salvation story. This is an act of grace. Then we'll move on to the next step because something else happens. While Moses is still in Egypt, and we don't know a lot about this, but we know that he's grown up as one of um, Pharaoh's uh, children, um, There's all the famous kind of movies out recently, Prince of Egypt. We don't know how much power Moses would have had, but he would have been a person of some privilege. But he's obviously aware that he is also a Hebrew. And one day he goes out and he sees um, one of the Egyptian slave drivers mistreating a Hebrew slave, and he becomes angry and he murders this Egyptian slave driver. And we need to to understand that this is what's going on. He is a murderer. Moses is a murderer. This is what the Bible tells us. It even says, you know, that Moses sort of looked this way and that way and seen no one. There's no sense that this is justified. And when you think about the slave driver, maybe he was doing the wrong thing, but if you happen to, you know, come upon a police officer that's acting abusively towards someone else, do you have the right to go and kill that police officer? No, you do not. And we know this is an act of murder because Moses looked around, made sure no one was looking when he did it, and then he buried the body. Then when he found out that he had been found out, he flees out into the desert. But what we need to keep in mind here is that here is Moses kind of having his own sort of moment of self-righteousness. He doesn't know that he's one day going to... help save all of the Israelites. This is his murder fail. Um, This is his lame attempt at trying to save Israel, and it's just completely lame. Um, Without God's help, he just blows the whole thing. And then we'll just move very quickly through because then Moses goes out into the wilderness for 40 years, but God's hand is still on him. He becomes a shepherd for 40 years in the wilderness, 
so that he can become a shepherd of God's people for 40 years in the wilderness. God trains him to be a shepherd out in the desert, and then he spends the next 40 years being a shepherd of God's people out in the desert. And we know he leads them out of Egypt, and he delivers the law that God has given him. And then this continual cycle of complaining and rebellion keeps happening. And keep in mind, by the time we get to this story that we've heard today, Moses' generation has already been disqualified. He hasn't, but his generation has been disqualified. So this is pretty discouraging stuff. If your life dream has been, I'm going to lead me and my generation into the promised land and the blessing of God, and now you've already heard these people that have been complaining against me and rebelling against me, they don't even get to go in. And it's pretty disappointing stuff. And then that leads us to today's story. If we can just have our next slide. Oh, sorry. <laughs> one last one. I just forgot to throw this one in. But the call of Moses, the, the call of Moses, when God finally meets Moses and says to him, I'm going to have you deliver the Israelites, the whole conversation demonstrates he doesn't even really know who God is. The fact that God has to say, I'm the God of your fathers, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and here is my name. And then as God speaks to him and says, I'm going to have you deliver um, the Israelites, he keeps on saying, no, send someone else, making excuses. So he is, he is the reluctant servant. All right, now on to today's story. So there's all this great disappointment. We know that even his own brother and sister have rebelled against him. The people are constantly complaining about food and about water and this, that, and the other. And so on this occasion, they don't have water. God calls him into the tent of meeting, and he says, just speak to the rock. You know, in my presence, speak to the rock. What he's really doing is God's saying, pray. Pray before, not to the rock, but pray to me before the rock so that people will see that I can provide. It's interesting that in the case of the manna, the bread that came from heaven, and this rock where the water came out, in the New Testament are both used as symbols of Christ. Um, Moses speaks and God sends bread from heaven that feeds the people. Jesus came to be God's bread of heaven so that he can feed us. And in the case of the rock, God, you know, provides living water out in the desert for the people. And Paul tells us Christ is that rock. He is the source of living water in any and every situation. So here it's really important that Moses carries out God's command the way he says it. But what does he say instead? (laughs) Must we bring you water out of this rock? And then he smashes the rock, and there you go, you bunch of rebels. And what's really happening here in Moses' situation is that his own sin is being exposed. Sometimes I've read a lot of the Bible scholars on this, and they try to say, there must have been something really horrible in this sin. Um, and, And they explore what may have been so bad about this. I actually disagree I think what's being exposed in Moses is what's common to all of us, that we are sinners, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Imagine if um, I happened to have been the only pastor that this congregation had ever had. I was there from the day that was planted until now, 
And things had gone along well, and God had blessed this congregation the way that he actually has. But one day the wheels kind of fall off, and there's a lot of murmuring and complaining um, from the congregation against me. And one day I get up and I say, after all I've done for you, I mean, look at what I have done. You know, this congregation has grown, and we have all these ministries and all of these things, and it's all because of me. Now, on one hand, we might sympathize because... It's hard when people complain about you and they say bad things about you and we can take that very personally. But what does it also do? It exposes the basic problem that goes all the way back to Genesis. The serpent says, you can be your own God. And suddenly, what God has done and the way that God has blessed us turns into after all I have done. And Moses has failed to give glory to God, has failed to show that God is holy. And he has shown that what the scriptures later say is true. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is absolutely true. But there's something that's even um, more striking about this. If we can just go to our next slide. We went through the Galatians series recently. This is a quote from Galatians 3. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed to be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. Um, in, in a more modern translation, Cursed is everyone who does not continually do everything that is written in the book of the law. Do you know where that quote comes from? It comes from Moses. It comes from the books of Moses. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That quote comes from Deuteronomy 27. The context of it is Moses is out in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy, it's full of Moses' sermons that he preached to the people. They had church regularly out there in the middle of the wilderness. The sermons that he preached. And on one of those sermons, he reminds the Israelites of all of the laws and the commands of God. And he says, do these things and you will be blessed. But remember to do exactly what God has said because blessed are those who do everything that the Lord has said and cursed are those who do not continue to do everything that the Lord has said. And so now we go back to this moment. And it draws out a fairly important biblical or theological point. Who is Moses? He is the lawgiver. Is there a flaw within the law? Well, according to Galatians, yes, there is. Because if you rely on the law, that's fine as long as you're willing to do everything that it says. How many here have always done everything that the law says? Okay, that's none of us. And so God seems to be drawing something out that is very important. Moses, as the lawgiver, symbolically... It's, it's going to be shown that this is not going to do it. It all boils down to the human ability to do what God says in order to receive the blessing. Not even the lawgiver is going to get it right because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So in this passage, if we can just bring up the next um, slide, something quite dramatic happens, and we may not see it unless we just take time to pause but in this chapter the reason it's so significant is the, the big three leaders of israel who all happen to be siblings moses and aaron 
and Miriam, the same Miriam who followed Moses down in the Nile River and made sure that he was all right. Aaron, who actually becomes the high priest of Israel and Moses. In this chapter, they're all disqualified. Along with the generation who's already rebelled against God and been disqualified from entrance into the promised land, these three will finally be disqualified as well. In the very first verse, in the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin. They stayed in Kadesh, and there Miriam died and was buried. The same Miriam who had already rebelled against Moses and been part of you know, the, the strife that he had, she dies. In verse 12, the Lord says to Moses and Aaron, because you do not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I will give you. In other words, you will die. And then the very end, and Aaron died there on top of the mountain. And when the whole community learned that Aaron had died, all the Israelites mourned for 30 days. In this chapter, theologically speaking, the three leaders of the Israelites are disqualified along with their generation because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and cursed is anyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Now that might all make sense, but it still, still seems a little bit hard for those of us who have become used to the grace and mercy of God, but the story is not finished yet. Let me just have our next slide. Not sure if you can quite see this very well, but this is a, a picture of the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. I want to read Mark's version of this from Mark chapter 9 from verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John with them and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you and Moses and Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. And then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them, only Jesus. Now, we could spend a whole sermon, you know, talking just about the Mount of Transfiguration, but in case you're not aware, Moses and Elijah are two of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, certainly two of the greatest miracle-working prophets of the Old Testament. Another thing that they both had in common is they both met with God on holy mountains. Moses met on Mount Sinai with God where the law was delivered. Elijah met uh, with God on the mountain in that sort of famous story where he keeps on asking for God to appear to him and there's a whirlwind and all of these things, but God is not there. And finally, in a still, small voice, God speaks with Elijah and gives him a, a profound picture of what he is about to do. And so now these two great prophets who have famously met on holy mountains in the presence of God find themselves on a holy mountain with Jesus. 
But if I can just sit Elijah aside for a moment, because we're not focusing on him today, let's think about what's going on here. Here is Moses on the holy mountain in the presence of Jesus Christ in the land of Israel. And the disciples who represent the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples who represent the 12 tribes are gathered on this mountain and God speaks to them. But what is even more profound than that is that Moses gets a taste of glory. We've been told in the scriptures that one day when Christ appears, we will be made like him. We will be transformed. We will be transfigured. We will be glorified with Christ. Do you know what would have happened to Moses if he had been allowed to go into the promised land? We'll eventually get to Joshua and Judges. The short story is more of the same. The the grumbling, the complaining, the sin, and all of that just gets moved from one place to another. You know, the sinful, rebellious Israelites out in the wilderness go into the promised land and become sinful, rebellious Israelites in the promised land. And Joshua now has to deal with it. And then the judges have to deal with it. And it would have just been more of the same. But God does something really special for Moses. He sets him aside for a moment and he places him down with his feet touching the promised land And he says, you know the one through whom all these blessings are going to come? Here he is before you, and here is your taste of glory. The glory that one day we will all taste. Not through Moses and not through Elijah because they disappeared. And God said, this is my beloved son. He's the only one that you need. He is the deliverer of the blessings and the promise. Listen to him. And I can't speak for Moses, but if I was given the option of of this or more of the same with the Israelites in the promised land, I, I would take this any day because this is a glimpse of what we will all experience one day. We can just bring up our next slide. This comes from the book of Hebrews, which you also might remember we did a while back, and it again, puts this whole story in such a wonderful context. Hebrews 11 talks about all of these great people of faith, including your Elijahs and your Moses and other people like it. But it says, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what they had been promised, since God has planned something better for us, so that only together with us, would they be made perfect? In other words, what we're getting a chance to see in the book of Numbers is sort of a picture of people striving for the promised land and striving towards the blessings of God, but ultimately none of those things would be fulfilled until Christ came and through his death and resurrection gave us eternal blessings and eternal hope and an eternal home. So all of these people who came before Christ None of them have seen and actually attained what they had been promised, including Moses. But Moses got something that I don't think anyone else outside of Elijah in the Bible has ever received, a brief taste and a brief glimpse of glory. But one day when Christ returns and we are all transformed and we're all transfigured and we all become like him, In that moment, Moses will look around 
and see a people of God that is more vast and more wonderful and more amazing like stars in the sky gathered together, God in our presence and us with him, and he'll say, I got to be a part of, one of, this, of this great story. The problem is if we go back and we say, poor Moses, we end up having to say, poor us as well, right? Poor us. After all we've done, haven't we? We've worked so hard. We've lived good lives. We've tried so much. And why is it this way? What is God doing? But we forget that Jesus Christ, the Holy One, was born in a barn, was raised as a refugee, spent three years as a servant, was misunderstood by his family, was abandoned and rejected by his own disciples, betrayed and denied by those closest to him. The highest religious leaders who represented his God and Father didn't want him in the temple, condemned him to death. He was taken outside of the city gates, outside of the holy city, and crucified as a criminal for sins that he never committed, for crimes and punishments that he did not deserve. But he did that all on our behalf. God made him who never knew any sin to become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. We are not poor because what we did not deserve through our own righteousness, Christ earned for us and one day he will come again and grant these blessings to us. We're going to sing our song of response. And then we'll have just a few more moments, uh, announcements before we finish today.